0: So we began last week and covered the first half of Paul's prayer, and at the very outset I tried to highlight the problem of understanding what it is that you ought to pray for somebody who has everything. That was the problem that I opened with because in the eulogy, the first few verses of chapter one, Paul labors to communicate to the Ephesians that they lack nothing. They have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has not withheld from them any spiritual blessing that he has to give. So when it comes to his prayer, the question arises, what then do you pray for such a person? And that is true of all Christians. The eulogy in chapter 1 is true not just of the Ephesians in Ephesus, But for all Christians, those who are in Christ have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Therefore, this prayer becomes very instructive for us. We learn through this prayer how we ought to go about praying for one another. And you'll remember what Paul prayed for the Ephesians is that they would know more of God and of his gospel. That, in summary, is Paul's prayer for the Christians in Ephesus who lack nothing, that they would apprehend more of what they have. His prayer is that they would keep in focus both the gift and the giver, that they would not separate the two and focus only on the gospel, but understand that it comes from a good God, and as they apprehend both, they would grow in their praise of him and they would be yet further equipped to walk in a manner that honors him that's a summary of last week and the first half of the prayer and just to pause there before we go on to make a simple observation and that is that you can never graduate beyond the gospel just as i've been thinking again on this prayer this week it struck me and i think worth It is worth mentioning, you can never graduate beyond the gospel. Remember, these Christians in Ephesus were flourishing. They were spiritually mature. Paul writes to them and says, I've heard about your love for one another and your steadfastness in the faith. They're not backsliding, they're not weak, they're not immature. He's not addressing problems within the church, they are flourishing. And to those Christians, Paul says, I pray that you would know more of God and of his gospel. If Paul finds cause to say such a prayer for these Christians, the implication is that neither you nor I can ever graduate beyond the gospel. If God saved you this morning, your responsibility tomorrow is to wake up, to open his word To study the truth concerning God and His gospel and to rehearse those truths to yourself. If God saved you 50 years ago, your responsibility tomorrow is to open up His Word. To study God, to study His gospel, and to rehearse those truths to yourself. In that respect, the Christian life is very simple. To be found faithful is to be to be found doing very simple things over and over again. You can never grow bored of the gospel. You can never think that you've got beyond it and you don't need to return to it. You need to ever remember in your mind that God saves people through the gospel and he sanctifies people through the gospel. It is always the recipe by which God accomplishes his work. And so, wherever you are at in your faith, however strong you are, whatever degree of flourishing the Lord has allowed you by His grace, you cannot get beyond the gospel. The responsibility that we all have is to keep returning to the message of our salvation and to the God who gives that salvation. Now, what Paul then does in his prayer is he gives what I would reference as a theology of power. In verse 20 and following, he speaks at length about the strength that he references in verse 19. He unpacks for us a little bit more of the power that is available to us as Christians through the gospel. So just by way of recap, as Paul has prayed that we would know more of God, he then says in order that you would remember certain things about who you are, the the calling you receive, those are past realities, the glorious inheritance that God has in you, that's the future hope we have, and then towards the end of verse 19, he settles on the immediate reality of our salvation, namely... The immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So just think about that logic. He says, What I want you to know as you fix your eyes on God is your past calling, your future hope, and then he comes to present day realities. He doesn't say past calling, present day realities, future hope, but rather the intentional order in which he places these truths is past, future, and then present, and it's on the present realities that Paul starts to unpack more of the theological profundity that comes to us by way of the gospel. And that is what we need to study tonight, the theology of power that Paul gives us that is ours in Christ But before we do, it is worth asking the question of why. Why does Paul frame his prayer in that way? Why does he go to the past and then to the future and then to come to the present? And then why does he unpack the present of the three realities of our salvation? Why does he unpack the present more than any? Why is Paul concerned to give us this excursus on God's power? We've mentioned a number of times that the primary theological backdrop to this whole letter is the occult, the Artemis cult in particular, that was prevalent in Ephesus at the time. This enormous temple that was right there in the city, and most likely thousands of people going to worship the goddess Artemis in the temple. And as we've seen in Acts chapter 19 that was beginning to cause some problems for the church. They were being faithful to the gospel, and as people were converting to this new way, people who were getting their trade from the Artemis cult were disgruntled. And so there was pressure being placed on the church. We've discussed that, and apart from the reality of the Artemis cult, it would be worth mentioning, in addition, that Paul... Apart from any pressures that they may have been feeling externally, Paul's desire is that these Christians would walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling in which they had received. Completely independent of any of the pressures that they may have been feeling, there's no reason to think that as Paul had left them that those pressures had died down, most likely had only increased, Apart from that, Paul desires them to live in a manner that is obedient to the word. And evidence of this is simply the observation that after three chapters, Paul turns a corner in this letter and starts to give to them the implications of this great gospel. You know that halfway through Ephesians, Paul turns a corner in his argument and the emphasis shifts from the theological realities of the gospel to the responsibilities that rest on the believer's shoulders. He starts to issue imperatives to the believers, one after another for three chapters. And independent of any pressure they may have been feeling from all of the folks involved in the, the cult life of Ephesus, Paul says you guys need to obey. You have to live in a manner that is worthy of the calling that you have received. And the imperatives that he gives are by no means light. You've read them. It's in Ephesians that we find the command given to husbands to love their wives how as Christ loved the church. Laying himself down for her. That's not a light command. It's not an easy command to obey. Any husband that takes seriously the word of God knows the difficulties involved in laying down your life in a daily manner for the benefit for the spiritual well-being of your spouse. We mustn't take that command flippantly. To take it seriously places on each and every husband a weighty responsibility in the Lord. It's in Ephesians that Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That is not a light command. That is a weighty imperative. The word of God, inspired inerrant, is to be authoritative over your lives each and every day. So, for any God fearing wife, she is to submit to her husband as to the Lord, and that is not easy. It's in Ephesians that Paul says, Children, obey your parents. It's not easy, it's not to be taken lightly. These are serious and weighty commands that come from God, and as the theology of that particular text shows us, in heeding these commands, we portray eternal realities that are true of God and His Son and the church. Truly understood, the imperatives that come through this letter start to showcase the gospel to a watching world. So they are by no means light. They are to be taken seriously. And I believe that the reason Paul rests in his prayer on the present realities of our faith, namely the power that has been made available to us in Christ, is because he wants us to know especially that God has equipped us to live an obedient life. And so it is that as we apprehend the power that is available to us, so we may be found faithful obeying the commands of Scripture. Now, as we think through these few verses this evening, we can divide Paul's argument into two parts. In the first, we may ask, what does this power look like? And in the second half, where can it be found? What does this power look like? Where can this power be found? And Paul begins by saying, backing up to verse 19, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So we can stop there and observe that the first thing Paul says about the power that has been made available to us as believers is that it is the same power that God exercised when he raised his son from the dead. It is the same power that God exercised in raising Christ from the dead. Jesus was a man. He was fully God and fully man. Both are true. We can tend to focus at times almost exclusively on his deity. Often we would do well to think more upon his humanity and I think such is a case where we benefit from considering his humanity. Jesus had a real fleshly human heart. It beat inside his chest just like yours does. Jesus had real human bones. Jesus had fingers. He had hair. He was a man. At the end of his life, as he was nailed to a cross, his heart stopped beating. Jesus died. The centurion thrust a spear into his side. Water and blood issued out. And you can read medical reports that testify that that is evidence that he was dead. The Gospels attest to his real, actual, physical death. Many at that time tried to argue to the contrary. They did not want to concede the reality of his resurrection. And so one thing they tried to do is to argue he didn't actually die. Jesus died on the cross. They took him down. They wrapped up his body and they put him in a tomb. If you go to Israel today... They know with quite a high degree of certainty where that tomb would have been. There are many, many things to see in Israel, as you can imagine, and all of them come with a level of uncertainty. You can do a tour and your tour guide will tell you we're not quite sure, but we think this is where such and such happened. As it relates to Jesus' death on the cross and his burial, we have a very high degree of certainty. Which means you can go today to the old city and see the place where most likely Jesus hung on a cross. And not far from it, very, very close, is the place where most likely he was buried. If you go there at any point during the day, as you can imagine, there are many, many, many people, many crowds. So I got up and went at 6 a.m. And I walked through the streets of the old city. And I went to the place where Jesus most likely hung on the cross. And then just a few feet away, really, went and stood where most likely he had been buried. And there was no one there. That was the beauty of going so early in the morning. I was the only person there. And I just stood there and thought about the reality of Jesus' death. And you can't imagine the sorrow... I don't think we can imagine the sorrow of the disciples who had been with him for three years. Growing in their awareness of who this man really was. Seeing him in his humanity and at the same time slowly apprehending his deity. Having confessed and arrived at the conclusion that he indeed is the one Who we have been waiting for to then see his life end. They were in no doubt our savior died today. And then to imagine the excitement. When they went back to the tomb. And he wasn't there. To imagine the excitement when they went back to the tomb and an angel was waiting for them so as to say, you are looking in the wrong place. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? The fulcrum that moves from one picture of immense sorrow to one of incredible joy is God's power. That is the pivot point that moves us from understanding Jesus to have died a real physical death to the point where his real human heart began to beat again. To the point where his eyes opened, and he stood up. He wasn't weak. He bore the scars of his crucifixion, but he was not weak in that moment. But more full of life than ever before, he emerged from that tomb in his resurrected body. And the the fulcrum the catalyst that moves us from the reality of his death to the reality of his resurrection is the power of God. And what Paul says to us here this evening is that that same power, not a different power, that same power is the power that has been made available to you in the gospel. That same power is available to you each and every day so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you had received. You are not lacking strength to obey. God gives you incredible power. Resurrection power. Life reinvigorating power. He raised his son from the dead and that same power he gives to every single believer so as to walk in a path of obedience. And if that were not enough, Paul says more about this power. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's a mouthful. Paul really wants us to know about this power. He says the power that is available to you is the same power that was exercised by God when he raised his son from the dead and when he seated his son on high. So Paul is shifting here from the theology of the resurrection to the theology of the ascension. Christ walked on this earth for many days after his resurrection. And then another extraordinary display of power was made manifest as he ascended into the heavens. And perhaps we struggle to get our mind around the power of the ascension We're very familiar with death and its finality. We understand intuitively the power that must have been exercised as Christ was raised from the dead. Perhaps we struggle a little bit more with understanding exactly the power that God exercised in raising him to his right hand. But just consider this briefly. Each and every one of us in our sin strives for our own self-exaltation. We all understand on some level the difficulties involved in exalting someone. Because we all strive in our sin to exalt ourselves. That is human nature. We strive for that exaltation and what we learn... Most often the hard way is that we are utterly incapable of exalting ourselves. God thwarts your efforts. Praise Him that He thwarts your efforts. And when society does exalt a mere human, we were never designed to be exalted. We quickly see that they can't cope with being in such a place of prominence. God doesn't, exalt, doesn't design us to be there. And so if somebody should reach any sense of exaltation in this earthly life, we quickly see the power in a negative way of being in such a position. People don't do well when they're so elevated. What Paul says is that there was one man who was highly Exalted. He was raised far, far above anybody in this life and in the life to come. He was so highly exalted that in fact his position of prominence is at the right hand of the Father. That's how highly exalted he is. He is at the Father's right hand. All of those spiritual blessings that Paul said are ours in Christ, in the heavenlies, that's where Christ is. And just to make the point plain, this is why Paul goes on and on with this particular thought so much, just so as there is no confusion, he says he is exalted at the Father's right hand far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Remember, the, the... Times in Ephesus were those where people were very much wrapped up into occult practices. They had their own understanding of exaltation and foreign deities that the Bible does not speak of. And Paul wants to make plain to the believers in Ephesus that Jesus is far above any of the thoughts that are out there concerning gods. Far above, he says. And these terms, rule, authority, power, dominion, while not being pure synonyms, there is certainly a lot of overlap in their meaning. Rather than pass each one to understand its particular intention, it is better to stand back and simply see Paul's emphasis. He probably has in mind here evil angelic forces. Spiritual forces that are not benevolent, but are indeed wicked. And Paul says Christ is far above them all. They're not even close to him. And just in case we would dare to think a thought along the lines of, yeah, that's now, but what about 10,000 years from now? Paul covers his grounds there and says, just so you know, this is true right now. He is above every single name that is named. Everything that is in God's creation, he is above it all, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. His position of prominence is eternal. It is everlasting. It will never, ever end. And the reason Paul goes to such length to give us such theology is so as to say this power. That God worked in the exaltation of his son is the same power. It is not a different power. It is the same power made available to you this very hour in Christ. God wants your obedience. He desires your obedience in the gospel. He sent his son so as to purchase your whole life. And now, in response to the salvation you have received, he designs that you would walk a path of obedience to his word. And that design, that desire of his is so great that he has not held back from you this great power. Rather, he has given it to you in its fullest sense so that, having access to it, you would step out a path of obedience every single day. The logic of Paul's prayer is that you have this, you just need to know it. Isn't it incredible what a little knowledge can do at times? You need to train yourself to reestablish the belief in your heart every day that God has not left you lacking We are so fickle in our thoughts. You can be greatly encouraged by all that happens on a Sunday, in the fellowship of the saints, in the prayers that are prayed, in the songs that are sung, in the word that is preached. A great encouragement to you. And on Monday morning, you can believe utter lies about yourself. You can go to bed, sleep through the night, wake up, and you can teach yourself lies that are not true. And God wants you to know that which is true concerning you and your salvation. You have this power. He's not going to take it away from you. He doesn't hold back. He generously gives it to you. He does desire your obedience. He has equipped you for it. He needs for you to know it. And so in one sense, again, the Christian life is so wonderfully simple. God does not demand anything spectacular from you, but that you would wake up and preach to yourself afresh: this is who the Bible says that I am. This is who Christ is to me. And this is what God has given to me. And if you would do that consistently, faithfully, day after day after day, you will be astounded. At the life that you will live in praise and honor of your Lord, the Jesus Christ, who God raised from the dead. You will live a remarkable life of faithfulness. Not necessarily accomplishing things that draw attention from men. But walking out a straight path of obedience. Quietly, humbly, with all grace and meekness. So that God is greatly honored in your life. Now with all of that said. Paul turns in his line of thinking. So as to address specifically where this power is found. He's told us what it looks like. It looks the same as the power that he exercised when he raised his son from the dead and ascended him on high, but where can it be found? Verse 22, he put all things under his feet, Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church. I hope, came to me just this afternoon, I thought, I really hope and I do trust that before I gave the answer to that question, before you see it in the text, just by virtue of our few weeks in Ephesians, you would already be able to respond to the question, where can this power be found? If you've been tracking with Paul's argument thus far, and I said to you this evening, prior to the service beginning, where do you think Paul teaches us that God's power is primarily located is to be primarily accessed. Where do you avail yourself of God's power primarily? I trust exactly that you would say it has to be the church. That is what Paul is teaching the Ephesians week after week after week. The church is the bride of Christ. And he says to us here, the power that God exercised in raising his son from the dead and ascending him on high is located to be found in the church. In verse 22, he says he put all things under his feet. This is an idiom that would have been readily understood to communicate that God has allowed Christ to exercise authority. It is not simply saying that he is above every other power and dominion, though that is true, but in his position above them, God has also granted him to exercise authority over them. That's what's communicated in verse 22. He put all things under his feet. He now has authority over them. And in that role, Paul says, he gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, the significance of understanding that this power is located within the local community of believers is perhaps best understood when you note that verse 22 there, that phrase, he put all things under his feet, is actually borrowing from Psalm chapter 8. If you have cross-references in your Bible, I would encourage you regularly as you read Whichever text you're reading, just allow your eyes to scan across to those cross-references because they're often a great help in studying the scriptures. If you have cross-references in your Bible, you might see in verse 22 that it says Psalm chapter 8, and that's because these words are taken directly from that psalm. Now let's just probe that for a few minutes. Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have ordained praise from the mouths of infants so as to still the avenger and the enemy. When I consider your glory, the handiwork in your created order. When I look at the sun and the moon and the stars that you have set in place. What is man That you are mindful of him. What is the son of man that you care for him? You have established him and you have put all things under his feet. Says the psalmist. Psalm chapter 8 is a psalm of creation theology. The psalmist there is rehearsing the theological truths in poetic fashion that attends to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It is a poetic commentary on Genesis 1 and 2. I see your glory in all of your created works, and I am blown away that you would put man on top of all of them, and that you would put all things under his feet. Referencing there, in particular, Adam, the first man, who was established as the king, the head of the created order. Paul draws on Psalm 8, knowing that Genesis 3 happened, mankind fell, we don't enjoy the glory we once had because sin has entered into the world. Paul draws on Psalm 8, referencing not Adam, but Christ. Christ. So Paul is shifting the theology now. Paul draws from Psalm 8 not with Adam in view, but with Jesus Christ in view. And as we will see many more times in this letter to the Ephesians, the point that Paul is making here subtly that he will make again, is that just as Adam stood as a head over creation, Jesus Christ stands as head over a new creation. He is the new, the better Adam. He stands over an expression of the new creation. The expression of the new creation is the church. Paul is not asserting that right now that new creation has arrived. He's not saying that. He is saying, though, there is an articulation of new things in the world. There is an expression of what God is doing, and it is found squarely in the local church. As you know later on in a different epistle, Paul says, If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Brothers and sisters, we are the first fruits of that new creation. We sit here this evening not belonging to this world. We belong to a different world. Reminded, as I say that, of the wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis who said, "If, If our desire in us is of things that this world cannot meet, cannot provide, cannot satisfy, the suggestion would be that we have been created for a different world. That is the hope that the Christian has. The longing that is in our heart that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world speaks of the fact that we belong to another world. In God's design, he has created the church to be the first iteration of new things that are yet to come. So do you see the glory of the local church and do you start to see the significance of his power being located here? It is not a strength that you can compare with other articulations of power in the world. It doesn't even compare. God's strength comes from a different world and is located only here. You will not find this elsewhere. You won't find it if you pursue your Christian faith as a lone ranger individual. You won't even find it if you pursue your Christian faith surrounded by lots of wonderful, God-honoring resources that are not the local church. You won't find it there. We praise God for everything that he has given us, equipped us with good books, lots of good media, lots of church conferences, lots of things we could list, but none of them are the local church. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, God's inspired word, that he set him as head over all things to the church. There are no footnotes. There are no parentheses. That word in the original means church. Paul is teaching us that God's power has been put here and not somewhere else. So wrapping it all together, if God's desire is that you would live an obedient life, found faithful to the commands of Scripture, then you start investing your time, your energy, all that you are in the church. I can give you a hundred reasons this evening why you should come to church. The one that Scripture confronts us with from this text, is because that is how you will live an obedient life. That is where you find the strength to live an obedient life. That is where you will be encouraged, exhorted, rebuked, challenged to live an obedient life. And to frame it in the negative, if you choose to forsake the assembling of the saints, as some are in the habit of doing... Do not think that you are going to live a life that honors the Lord. Do not allow yourself to buy into the lie that if you forsake the assembling of the saints, you will tread out a path of obedience to God. It is not going to happen. I perhaps have shared before, whenever I sit down to counsel with somebody, As they present to me what is the problem, why are we here, why are we meeting together in this way, I'll then at some point start to ask about their Bible reading, their prayer life, and their church involvement. Because I can tell an awful lot based on the answers they give to those questions. And I am almost certain, if we are here in a counseling scenario, if things aren't going right, things have come off the rails, we are are needing to be around this table in a counseling environment, I am almost certain that your church involvement is not what it ought to be. And at a foundational level, the way in which we get you back to a healthy position is to ensure that when the saints gather, you are present. You are not doing the bare minimum. You are not the last to arrive and the first to leave. You do not avoid meaningful fellowship, but rather you run towards those things. And I say that knowing that God has wired each and every one of us differently And not all of us get excited by the idea of lots of people in one room together. I know that that, for many of you, is a terrifying thought. And I would just encourage you. Pray that God would help you to get beyond that to understand that more important than your comfort on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening, more important than you feeling like you are in a safe space, is that you would be here in a meaningful way. If you are not wired so as to, to run towards lots of people, many of whom perhaps you don't yet know, then make that a point of prayer. God, help me. Pray on your way to church. God, help me to be a blessing to others tonight. Shield me from from going back into myself. I don't want to be that person in this church, but would you strengthen me this evening to run towards fellowship, to run towards the fellowship of the saints because I know that your word tells me that is how I am going to live an obedient life from Monday through to Saturday and I really want to do that. Now, a word on what it looks like when you do show up. No one is asking you to do anything spectacular. Church involvement means that you show up you serve other people and you worship the Lord Jesus. You show up and you serve other people and you worship the Lord Jesus. You show up with a disposition in your heart that I am here to bless others. You serve other people and you worship the Lord Jesus. And when you do that, you will be availing yourself of a supernatural power that cannot be found outside of the church and equips you to live an obedient life. May that be the way in which we go about our involvement at this church to the praise of God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we are so amazed this evening to consider the reality that the power which is ours in the gospel is the same power that you worked as you raised Christ from the dead and seated him on high. It is not a different power, but the same power comes to us in Christ. And the location of that power, is the local church. Instruct our hearts concerning these realities. Father, lead our hearts in right thinking about the strength that you have made available to us and the place where it is to be found. And I pray that each and every one of us would be racing towards the local church so as to avail ourselves of this power in order that hour by hour our footsteps would align with the commands of Scripture. We would live out a life of obedience to your commands, and we pray this to the praise of Your glory. Amen.